Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's July 4th, 2022. It's birthday day in America. Happy birthday, America. You are 246 years old, whatever that means. Of course, uh, you had a life before that birthday, but a more complicated life, perhaps. In some ways, July the 4th, 2022 seems just another day in American history, another mass shooting in Chicago, another police killing in Akron, more and more instability, discord, lack of conversation. Um, uh, a 10-year-old girl uh, forced to travel from Ohio to Indiana for an abortion. Uh, meanwhile, Joe Biden, um, pictured here, looking as if there's a fire behind him, maybe there really is a fire, uh, suggests that our best days are still ahead. Uh, Fox repeated that, I guess, as some sort of parody. George Soros, one of America's great observers and perhaps critics has argued that U.S. democracy now is under concerted attack. We've already had a show about the state of America in, 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 uh, on July 4th, 2022. So I thought what we would do today, or actually what my quote-unquote guest, Jonathan Rauch, um, insisted for him to come on the show, is rather than me talk to him and interview him about the state of America uh, on July 4th, 2022, uh, we would have a conversation. So it's going to go both ways today uh, with, with John Routh. He's been on the show a couple of times before. He's one of uh, America's, um, I think, smartest observers of, uh, of what's happening in America. He's the author, his latest book, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. Um, he also has a really interesting interview out in the Washingtonian about why he wishes America were more or less were less like Twitter and more like Wikipedia. So, John, let me start, and then I'm going to avoid all these images. Uh, what is the state of America on July fourth, twenty twenty-two? Should we be celebrating its birthday or perhaps acknowledging its death, or or both? <laughs> well, I, I guess both. You know, you and I both came to adulthood in America at about the same time. I started my my career after college in 1982. Uh, the wonderful thing about America for me as, as a gay American is the complete transformation of, of my life, of the attitudes toward me. When I came out of college, um, we were second-class citizens, couldn't marry, couldn't serve in the military, couldn't work for the government reviled in the pulpits and all that's changed and that's fantastic so at a personal level my gratitude toward america on july 4th is is undiminished maybe greater than ever at the public level uh like everybody like you i suspect i'm very worried um you know it's perhaps better than it was two years ago when donald trump was still in office but we have a political party which is dedicated to principles that are really more like the european right than the American right. We've got the installation around the country of Republican office holders who are promising to essentially ignore the election results if they're unfavorable. Uh, we've got the January 6th commission, which is showing there really was a very large conspiracy, thoroughgoing conspiracy to 
essentially end democracy in America. These are shocking things, Andrew. Um, but I'd like to know where, where you come out. You know, you, I think you mentioned before the show, you've been, you're in your 39th year of being part of the American scene. Yeah, it should be. Is, is, is this the best, the worst, or sometime somewhere in between? It's a good question. I remember when I first uh, came to America, and some things haven't changed. I remember coming to Berkeley, to UC Berkeley as a grad student in the early 80s. And there was a sense of despondency, of pessimism. Uh, rather than China, the country of the future was Japan. Uh, similar sorts of racial and perhaps in some ways political divisions. And then, of course, we had the 90s. We had Clinton. We had the Internet. And we had 20 years of, or certainly 10, 15 years, perhaps 20 years of optimism. So... Uh, it might be worth reminding ourselves that there have been periods of pessimism in America before, and, and you and I have both lived through. I was thinking in terms of your comments as a gay American, you, it's not uniquely American. I mean, if you'd have been born in England or France or Germany, would it? do you think your history would have been fairly similar? I suppose it might have been. Um... It's as much a triumph of liberalism as it is Americanism per se, you know, but I think a lot of what inspired that progress was the word set out in the Declaration of Independence. The, the greatest gay leader of the 20th century, Frank Kameny, was American, and, and he viewed the Declaration as a personal promissory note to him and demanded that it be fulfilled over a multi-decade career. So, so I think... Personally, I think the American story is is more profound and moving. And of, of course, it's it's my story. And I'm, I'm married now to a man. And that man is an immigrant from Hong Kong. Uh, and imagine the situation now if he were still Hong Kong Chinese. But but he's American now. So all of those things give me a sense of of deep pride. You, you mentioned pessimism. The, the decade that I remember is as really pessimistic, really gloomy, maybe worse than the present, wasn't the 80s, it was the 70s. Yeah. We had, you had inflation then, we had the collapse in Vietnam, the losing of, of that war. Uh, we had Watergate and the crash of confidence in institutions and government, which, which never really came back. We had weak leadership in the form of Jimmy Carter. Um, and we had, a, we had more violence. We had terrorist bombings every day, domestic terrorism, primarily from the left. Uh, and of course, we had Roe versus Wade, which started a massive culture war, which now is greater than ever. So we had all of that, and and in a way, Andrew, I think, I think, in a, I, I see a lot of echoes of the '70s in America right now. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about that. I just watched a couple of movies from the '70s: The Taking of Pelham One Two Three, which is a sort of comedic take on quote-unquote domestic terrorism. I don't know what, when you said there was domestic terrorism every day in America in the 70s, I don't know what you mean. And the other thing I saw was all the president's men, which showed both the vitality of, um, of independent journalism, which I think both you and I are worried about, uh, but also the corruption in DC, which, which hasn't changed. Um, in, in terms of, I, I just want to come back to this gay marriage thing, because I think it's interesting um, we had Sasha, uh, I had Sasha Eisenberg on the show recently, who's written this book about the history of gay marriage from being 
something that was unthinkable to something that no one gives a second thought, even people on the right. Um, I mean, what what has changed? How, how do you get things like gay marriage through so that they go from being unimaginable and unthinkable and a, a, a source of a terrible burden, imprisonment for a guy like you, to being something that's just taken for granted? I had a conversation earlier with uh, earlier today uh, with George Monbiat, the English environmental writer, who cited the case of gay marriage in terms of us uh, imagining a better environmental world. So that's become the model now for anyone wanting to change the world. You know, Andrew, there will always be an element of mystery because when I started advocacy for same-sex marriage, 1995 now, what is that, over 25 years ago, um, I thought we were talking about a generation from now, maybe two generations from now, maybe never. So I'm as astonished as you are at the speed at which things unfolded, but but it was it was three things, three or four things. One is a lot of gay people came out and Americans became familiar with their, their homosexual fellow citizens. A second was a strategy that, that moved through the courts, making a series of arguments. We had to go to the courts. We were criticized for that, but no legislator anywhere in the state capital would introduce a gay marriage bill. And that allowed us to, to make our case, even though initially we lost those battles. The third is intellectual. I was part of that. Uh, Same-sex marriage was a break from gay rights movement before it because it was about giving back to the community. It was a conservative movement. It was saying, let us form families. Let us be part of the community. Contribute in the same way that you do. Same for gays in the military, the other great issue that began in the 90s. And that relocated the issue from being a sort of radical demand for rights by an outspoken outsider group to people saying, we want to join the American community. We, we want to be part of it. Um, so it was really all of those things, and they happened at once. But, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I think there will always be some some element of mystery why it happened when it did. What is your opinion of somebody like Andrew Solomon? I, I assume you know him. Mm -hmm. uh, both live in the same town, interested in similar issues. About um, this schism within the gay community and the schism over gender, particularly in the trans community. Do you see that as another feature of the crisis of American liberalism? Potentially. Andrew is more immediately alarmed about it than I am. Um, I think, so So for your viewers who may not be au courant with all of this very strange stuff, there's a faction on the left that's I call it gender queer is one of the labels it, it goes by. And it goes much further than just saying, let's make life comfortable for trans people by accommodating them to the extent that's, you know, it's reasonable and good. It says, uh, let's queer the whole idea of gender. Let's have gender anarchy. Let's wake up every morning and choose our pronouns. Let's do away with the notion of biological males and females on and on. You know, I was at a, at a prep school famous prep school a few months ago and met with the Gender and Sexual Alliance, which is a student group. And the kids there were saying they get up in the morning and decide their pronoun and their gender based on how they feel that day. And one identified herself as a, as a demigirl. 
So in a way, that's kind of harmless cosplay. On the other hand, Americans are not ready to wake up in the morning and decide what gender is or to move, move biology to one side. So people are starting to realize how radical these ideas are. Uh, what I hope will happen, what needs to happen is what happened with the gay movement in the 90s where people, including Andrew Sullivan, uh, I was involved, many others were involved, said, wait a minute, we, we can't let the far left hijack our movement. Um, we, um, and we didn't. We spoke up. We said that these radicals who you know, want to get rid of marriage because they think it's patriarchal, they don't speak for us. So we'll see. But the, the hope is that the same thing can happen now and that forces of common sense can, can bring the movement back. But, but we'll see. It's a, you know, it's a country that's very given to extremes right now, as, as you know, as well as anyone. Yeah, it certainly. And, and, and that brings to mind um, a piece that you wrote with Peter Wayne, another frequent uh, guest on the show. But, well, you're more of a centrist. He's a conservative, but a I guess a Christian conservative, I don't want to label him too much, in which you argued in the Times, it was quite a controversial piece, that you're more fearful of the right than the left in America, the anti-democratic right versus the anti-democratic left. You may be right, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you, but I do think they're connected, that oh, yeah. what's gone wrong is reflected both on the left and on the right, on this intolerance, lack of humor, inability to converse and talk in absolutes. Can we blame everything, John, on the internet? I've made a career out of doing that, probably rather opportunistically. You've been a little, you, you, you know, your last book suggested that as well, but we can't blame everything on Silicon Valley, can we? No, no. I'm In terms of uh, polarization and disinformation and some of the other social, I guess, civic ills that we're facing, uh, the internet's a factor, but but I think of it as it's the accelerant, it's not the fire. The, the, the deeper problems include the changes in the Republican Party, which have made it far more authoritarian and illiberal than it used to be. A very deep change is the sorting of the parties. It used to be you had liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats, and, and they were mixed up enough so it was pretty easy to talk to find someone to talk to on the other side, but that's changed. Now everyone in the Republican Party is to the right of everyone in the Democratic Party, and with those two groups talking to each other, the Democrats are drifting left, the Republicans are drifting right, the center is increasingly empty, and that drives polarization on social media and elsewhere. And then we got this thing that you've heard of, you know, it's called affective polarization. And that's when our divisions moving move from we disagree with each other, you know, you're pro-choice, I'm pro-life, high taxes, low taxes, whatever, to we fear each other. We see each other as enemies, as threats. And that's happened in America. And that's new. Um, the Internet, I think, heightens that a bit. But, but it was already happening before the Internet. And it's a pretty deep problem. You wrote an interesting review of Matthew Continenti's new book on uh, conservatism, which you're familiar with. My sense is something has profoundly changed on the right with Bannon and Peter Thiel and a lot of the other, shall we think of them, I don't know what you would call them, smart conservatives. They've almost become Leninist in their focus on power. 
whether or not they ever had any principles in the first place, they might argue they do have principles. I'm sure Lenin argued he had principles too. But everything was focused on power. It's always interested me that both Lenin and Thiel are brilliant chess players. Lenin famously, Mm. when he was in Zurich, gave up chess to focus on the revolution. It might have been better if he'd focused on his chess game. It might have been better for the rest of the world. Um, Thiel is also a masterful chess player, a brilliant strategist. Is there? Do you think that something is going on in the sense that the smart conservatives, the imaginative, futuristic conservatives, the Teals and the Barons, uh, the Bannons, have simply moved beyond democracy? They just don't care. But they're not against democracy. They just don't care about it anymore. Well, there's, you know, there's a factional dispute in the Republican Party, so we'll see if that's true. But, but you're certainly right, Andrew, that there's, there's now a nihilistic wing of the right in America. You know, if you have a chance, take a look at the profile of Steve Bannon that Jennifer Sr. just wrote. Yeah, you know, Jen was on the show. And, uh, yeah. I, I read it, and I hope you'll have a chance to, to, um, to, to watch the interview. That, that's what shaped my... What's striking is this this kind of perfect storm of nihilism and narcissism that you see in this guy. He's clearly an intelligent human being. There's no question about that. But he doesn't have a positive vision of where he wants to take America. He's not interested in policy. And apparently his catchphrase when he worked in the White House, you know, just steps from the Oval Office, astonishingly, was burn it down. And there's a paper by a guy a couple of years ago, a political scientist named Michael Bang Peterson. I think he's European. It's called The Need for Chaos. And it finds that like 20 to 25% of people endorse statements like we should just destroy all institutions and burn them to the ground. And that they kind of revel in this kind of thing. It's almost like the Joker out of Batman. Yeah, he, uh, uh, B- Bannon really reminds me. It's almost as if that movie could have been made for him or by him. Now, you got here when Reagan was president, so you've seen this transformation up close. Can you imagine a Reagan in today's Republican Party? Um, well, if there was a Reagan, he wouldn't be Reagan. I mean, he's, I know that's a bit of a dumb thing to say, but Actually, it's a I'm pretty not sure Reagan was a master of history. I mean, he was driven by it. He took advantage of it. Um, I mean, if Reagan was around today, he'd probably be DeSantis, wouldn't he? You know, Reagan was... I I know Trump is hard to categorize and hard to compare with other people, but but Reagan was a a smart opportunist in the way that DeSantis is. You know, Reagan was determined to be optimistic. He was bright about America's future. He turned out to be a policy wonk. There were really things he wanted to do. Uh, He wanted to, for example, he was visionary about wanting to get rid of nuclear weapons, but he also cared about taxes. He cared about communism. He always believed America's best days were ahead. He always said, uh, you know, his, I think he called it the 11th Amendment, thou shalt not speak ill of another Republican. To me, it was almost the obverse of of what passes for a Republican right now. You know, it's it's so dark, it's so negative, it's so nihilistic. Um, it's not interested in policy. A guy like DeSantis, you know, is, is, he's very good on the culture wars. And in some ways he's been an effective governor. Um, 
but to me, not like Reagan. To me, very a very different kind of thing. I, I want to go back, John, to what you your, your critique of Bannon. You said he you used the two N words that are in vogue: nihilism and narcissism. I did. I'm not sure that he did. Um, and when we want to insult someone, we call them a narcissist and a nihilist, which, you know, they're not nice words. No one wants to be a narcissist or a nihilist. But I wonder if there's more to somebody like Bannon, as there was more to Lenin, more to somebody like Thiel, that they simply recognize that that the old battles are no longer relevant and that there is a new world. Um I did a, an interview a couple of years ago with a um, British historian of ideas who, who wrote one, a couple of excellent books on liberalism and conservatism. And he says, or he wrote, um, that uh, in modernity, the, the left um, or liberals have always taken the first move and it's always conservatives have won the chess game. And my sense with Bannon and Thiel is that they already understand that there's a new game and that they're going to win it. And and I wonder for you, I mean, your day job is at Brookings. You're a, a policy person. You understand how positions are taken and made and realized. Is that world still relevant? Well, I think you're right um, that the Bannons and Teals of the world would would say it's not. Um, I guess I would say that what I think of as the liberal side of the picture, more in a European sense of liberal. I don't mean American style progressive. I mean people who who believe in constitutional orders and rules and minority rights um, and peaceful rotation through office and that all people are born free and equal. Um, and all of that, all of that stuff. July 4th stuff, John. <laughs> One version, yes, of July 4th stuff. The stuff that I think the founders were for. Um, I think we got taken by surprise. I know that that happened on the epistemic front, the knowledge front, you know, with the, the rise of the internet, massive Russian-style disinformation campaigns being conducted out of the White House, for example. No one imagined that such a thing could happen. But liberalism has been written off for dead before many, many times, including by the aforementioned Lenin, uh, including by Adolf Hitler. Vladimir Putin now thinks that he's kind of the figure of a new dawning age. Uh, so does President Xi. And consistently through history, those people have been wrong. At least they've been wrong when liberalism has gotten its act together and pushed back. And one of the reasons that they're wrong is we alluded to this earlier. I, I don't think the Stephen Bannons of the world have any positive agenda for governance. I think they know what they're against. I think they know how to stir up trouble. Um, but their economic formula, for instance, trade protectionism, is a tried and true failure. It's failing now. It's contributed to inflation. It's not saving American jobs. Uh, shutting down immigration will hurt our country's competitiveness, and it's bad for our workers. Uh, you need to regulate it, but they don't have a positive vision. And every time we see them get in control of a country, you know, whether it's Bolsonaro or uh, or Orban, uh, we see they mess it up. We see that they don't know how to govern, and they're not interested in governing. Yeah, I'm so, not. I mean, I think you may be right about Bolsonaro. I'm not convinced you're right about Orban. But 
Maybe. America is very different. I mean, even from when I came in 1983, 84, uh, Japan was supposed to be the future. It didn't turn out to be. Now it's China, which seems much more credible. Bannon's show on the internet, very popular show, very popular podcast called The War Room, is about this perpetual state of war. It's a Leninist idea. Yes, it is. If you can't compete with the Chinese, go to war with them. I mean, Trump tried to articulate that not very successfully. Do you think for American liberalism to become viable again, American economic innovation needs to be reinvented? Can America survive in a world where it's second fiddle or at least equal to China? Well, I think so. Um, I mean, the American idea of liberalism, obviously America's not going anywhere. Uh, I, I think so. Uh, I'm going to make, I'm going to say that it's, it's a stronger statement than, than I hope so. You know, the Bannons and Teals of the world might be right, but, but China is, is going to be under increasing strain as it tries to govern itself in a world where its economy has caught up. It's got to prove it can innovate. Its foreign policy is very unpopular. People are looking for alternatives. They don't want to be dominated by it. It's increasingly aggressive overseas. Um, I'm not sure it's a sustainable model, um, but I don't want to sound complacent. You know, I, I in a way, um, maybe maybe this sounds peculiar. I don't know, Andrew, but but in a way, for liberalism to get its act together, we have to assume that that the Bannons of the world might be right. Um, we have to stop taking for granted things that we took for granted for years, you know, that the marketplace of ideas will sort itself out and truth will rule. Well, that's, we're in a real fight over the narrative about, for example, the 2020 election. We assume that neoliberal economics, which I'm very much in favor of, you know, free trade, open economies, um, that this makes countries richer in the long run. Well, that's, that may be true, but it creates big patches of very painful losers in the short run. And we didn't really keep our promises in terms of retraining, in terms of safety net. Um, that's partly the fault that, you know, there were some powerful entrenched forces opposing those things. But but yeah, we have a lot of work to do. Uh, we got to do a better job keeping our promise to people in places like rural areas and left behind areas and, and Democrats. We hear this. And I've been in America for 40 years. We've heard this for 40 years. And every year it gets worse. Every year, and I'm not criticizing you. I mean, I'm sure you genuinely mean this. But um, the underclass has become poorer, more irrelevant. The wealthier, the people on the coast, people like you and I, become more and more powerful, freer and freer. Why should anything change? What, you know, the Biden presidency, whatever one thinks of Joe Biden, I think is going to be remembered at best as a non-event. Um, why, why, what, where's the evidence that anything's going to change? Meanwhile, America is obsessively arming itself. The medical, the healthcare crisis is increasingly profound. You have the environmental crisis, you have multiple crises all connected. Where's the evidence that anything's getting better? Well, boy, that's bleak. I should I should just go and take some hemlock. Uh, and it may answer a question, a personal question I was hoping to, to ask you, which which at some point you can decide if you want to answer, which is, have you ever no, considered taking American citizenship? 
Um, and and is is this outlook a reason why perhaps you haven't? Well, that's a good question. I, I don't think I chose not to take American citizenship because I I don't want to bet on America in the future. I'm just not. In fact, if anything, I think that would make it more intriguing. Um, I'm just not a a great uh, enthusiast for any form of bureaucracy or form filling. And I like my British passport. So there's no reason for me to have uh, an American passport. I think the thing about America, and this comes back to living here, and this is perhaps what also weakens American democracy, is it's a very, very easy country to live in. Whatever one thinks of America, whatever one thinks of the injustices, the ironies, the paradoxes, the tragedies, it's still the easiest country in the world to live in. You can just come here. No one bothers you. You do whatever you like. You invent and reinvent yourself. And that is, in many ways, still enormously valuable. I'm just not sure it's strengthening democracy. Do you feel, again, if this is too personal, skip it no, or cut ask, it out. You're, you're interviewing me, John. Never, I never say that. Never, never put that caveat in. Never allow me an escape hatch. <laughs> Well, we're getting into personal territory, but is the interior Andrew Keene a Brit, an American, or a kind of detached, floating non-citizen of the world? Well, probably a fourth, which puts me in sync with you. And 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 it's not gay. So um, what is it? Well, the J word, John. Journalist? No, it's a better J word. Ah, Jewish. Yeah. Which allows us to float freely and define ourselves how we wish. I'm not saying all Jews can do that, but certainly. So an outsider in that respect. And now, you know, the classic insider outsider. I mean, that's how I've made my career, Silicon Valley and these sorts of shows of asking naughty questions, but having access to guys like you. Um, and again, I'm not sure that's particularly Jewish. I mean, I'm sure you can be non-Jewish and be able to do that too. But uh, in terms of my identity, that's probably the thing that most defines me as somebody from North London. Uh, yeah, and the people I grew up with, m many of the people I've grown up with, many of my closest friends have left England. So I never felt particularly English. Even if I sound it, it's funny to Americans. They always think, oh, this guy must be so English. And uh, I'm not sure if I am. I even know what so English means. So I was born triple canceled, um, gay, atheist and Jewish. And one can be all those three things. And I was conscious of them all from the age of five or six, even though I didn't have labels for them. But but I knew that there were there were things about me that were very different and that I would never blend in. And yet somehow, in my case, that attached me more to my, my country and a sense of entitlement to be part of it rather than, than less so. I, I lived in Britain for a year and then again in a later spell for several months. I lived in London and, and worked for The Economist. And I came away thinking that, that Britain, I guess I should say England now, because they are distinct, but that, that England was in many ways... A, a country that underrated itself. You know, America overrates itself. It's got to be the best and the world leader and everything. And the, and the Brits were kind of very demure and, and they, you know, they didn't really think they had a great thing going and they'd lost an empire. But but I thought Britain was, was a wonderful size for a country. I thought there was a kind of common sense to the British people. I think we see that now that they 
um, that they've had insisted on some accountability from Prime Minister Johnson. I wish we had some of that mm. in our Conservative Party. So I, I thought there was a wonderful stability and calm about Britain, but I never could feel attached to to it. I, I could never feel the same sense of, of dynamism and, and belonging. And yeah, I mean, that's the one thing when you come to America, it's very, I mean, there's two kinds of English people who come to America, the people who come, don't like it for a year or two, and then just go back. And then once you stay, it's very hard to go back because it seems increasingly small and trivial and parochial, which it is. But I want to ask John, uh, another question on this imaginary Teal Bannon future. I could conceive of a future where Bannon and Teal are in control, where John Rauch can do pretty much what he wants. We could have these kinds of shows. Um, you can choose what you get up to in, in your bedroom. They're not going to abolish your right to get married to whoever you choose, male or female, or perhaps both simultaneously. Um, can we conceive of a, shall we call it um uh, a, a, a technocratic authoritarianism that a, a Teal and a Bannon or perhaps more imaginative younger versions of Teal and Bannon could construct in the 21st century? What a, what a provocative question. So I'd like to know your answer to that. My answer and it's sort of no. like Singapore. I mean, we're not talking about China and huge prison camps. So... My answer to that is no, but I, I'll tell you why, and then I want to hear your answer to that. And my answer is that people, I'll generalize by saying people like Steve Bannon and Peter Thiel, imagine people like them running the show in a Trumpian MAGA future. And they're wrong about that. Um, as we've seen, the, the, the Trump, the MAGA movement will throw them under the bus at the first opportunity. And the MAGA movement is fundamentally illiberal. We see that um, in the January 6th commission. We, we see it in the fact that they're installing election officials around the country who are one step shy of promising uh, not to allow Democrats to be elected. So I think the MAGA movement is fundamentally illiberal. I think it's, um, it's, a, it's a fundamental conflict and the notion that there's kind of a stable stopping point, which is kind of a benign right-wing technocracy is a fool's paradise. What do you think? Well, I hope you're right. I'm, I'm not convinced. I mean, I think you're right that probably there'll be people within the movement who would want the blood of Bannon and Teal, and that we have lots of precedents in history from the, the, the Jacobins to the Bolsheviks. Um, but that's the nature of things. And I, I don't see any, you know, to me, the worrying thing is that the argument in favor of democracy is what, Joe Biden? It, 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 the, the center has folded so dramatically in this country. It's so, you know, as, as we know, on the left, you have the multicultural debate, which is a sideshow. Um, so for me, the, the I don't even know if it's the fear, the promise of technocracy is not entirely unrealistic. And it so can be a technocracy dressed up as democracy. There's no reason why they're going to shut the courts down or they're going to shut the free press. It didn't, that ha didn't even happen in China or Russia, let alone Singapore.
So in office, these people will have to do things that are anti-technocratic. They will have to keep themselves in power by, for example, using things like tax breaks and trade preferences to help their friends and cronies. They will have to run up enormous deficits as Trump did before the pandemic. But was it two or three trillion dollars he added to the national debt? They'll have to give lots of stuff away as populists always do and wreck the country's finances. So I I don't think they can govern technocratically. But question for you, because it's it's but, but let me very just jump in. I mean, Erdogan in, in Turkey has been doing this relatively successfully for years. I mean, you could even argue that Putin's doing it successfully in Russia. Erdogan, last last check, you may know more about it than I do, but last check, he was running into severe problems with his economy. And we always hear that about him, and he, he may run into severe problems, but he also runs out of them as well. I don't think it's what you could call a technocracy, but let's suppose it is. Let's take your premise and run with it because it's such an interesting question. Let's suppose you could have a you know capable technocratic government, maybe a Lee Kuan Yew kind of thing in the United States, but the price for that is you've got a government that is a minority government. Uh, it, It controls all of Congress, the presidency, and the Supreme Court without the mandate of a majority of the people. Uh, We already have that to a large extent, but suppose that really burrows in and becomes the status quo indefinitely, so the majority no longer governs. And suppose you have an administration which has weaponized the Justice Department, for example, so that its cronies don't get punished and its enemies do. And suppose you have uh, elections that are rigged consistently, for example, but it's, you know, it's technocratically okay. The, the country goes on from week to week. Would that be terrible? Would it be okay? What, what would, what would you make of that? Well, it w- obviously from my point of view, it wouldn't be okay. If it's someone who believes in democratic liberalism, but I think it's viable. And the interesting question is, if that existed, would you leave? I mean, you might not be able to. I'm not even sure if I would leave. Where am I going to go? Back to England? Uh, lots of people have promised, oh, if Trump gets reelected next time around, I'm going to leave. You always hear that. No one ever does. Um, well, in the world you describe, you know, one doesn't really have to leave. We're not talking concentration camps. We're not talking midnight knocks on the door and that sort of thing. We're talking about the hollowing of hollowing out of institutions and kind of the Hungarian model, which is what the the right is telling us is their model. They're not hiding their light under the bushel. They're and I was just in Budapest a couple of months ago. It's a it's still a, a city with enormous vitality and wealth, culture. So, yeah, you've really put your finger on, I think, in some ways, the existential question, which is where the the, the future, if if things go south here, I, I think doesn't look like, you know, Italy before World War II or anything like that. I, I think right. it looks much more like Hungary. And I think that's the model of the right. And the question that we have to ask, you and I, I think we both care about the country not becoming like that. And in fact, I would accept a hit to, for example, economic growth, if that was what was required to keep liberalism going. But but the question is, is the American public going to make that same choice? And the honest answer, Andrew, is I don't know. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, in Hungary, having conversations, I mean, there's a, a an even bigger division between Budapest and the countryside as there is between D.C. or New York, D.C. where you are, and San Francisco where I am, and the rest of the country. Um, uh, my sense is that most people might 
argue, well, nothing much has changed. Democracy doesn't work for me. It hasn't worked for the last 50 years. Um, I don't really understand what happens in D.C., but it never impacts on my life. They're crooked anyway. What is it? You know, what's the difference really? Yeah, I mean, uh, the crookedness isn't true, but some of the other stuff is true. Well, if you're a minority, if you're a gay person in Hungary, you're not very happy right now, now that they've adopted LGBT as the big threat to the country. Putin did the same thing. Uh, this seems to be one of the most effective populist talking points. And of course, Soros is a big target in Hungary. So the Jews are, are targeted too. And I could see that happening in the United States. I could see feeling endangered as a Jew or a homosexual in this in this regime. Uh, I'm not sure how much the public would care about it in the end if the economy were booming, but 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 I could see that. And the ultimate metric, if that's an appropriate word, is the word is change, invention reward a system that works that clearly the american political legal system at the moment just doesn't work it's archaic it might not be corrupt but it's in one kind of paralysis or another and progressives have no idea of how to fix it well one reason i'm i feel more hopeful than you do Maybe not significantly hard. more hopeful. Not not hard, yeah. Uh, apart from you know the generic arguments that you you're tired of, like you know we've we've had worse in the past and we've come through it, right? Whatever. Um, is that I think that we've gained a lot more clarity in the last five or so years. Partly, let's admit it, thanks thanks to Trump and the problems that he surfaced. I think we understand much better than we did five years ago, for example, that that the real breakdown in American politics, not the real one, but, but I, think, I think the problem at the center of the process is the nomination system and the primary system and the fact that extremists in both parties have taken that over. Um, so there's increasing focus on figuring out paths to change that, interest in actually doing it. It's been done in Alaska. It's gonna save Senator Murkowski. Um, so I think, we always grope, we liberals, right, Andrew? We can never assume progress. The Whiggish view of history is is not right. But I think we have a, a clear take also on, for example, what's happened in rural America and deindustrialized America, and that we ignored it too long. It was much too hard to get our attention. But but we we understand that better. I think there's growing understanding that the notion that you know we should subsidize student loans so that everyone should go to college is is unrealistic and a bit silly, and that we've been neglecting other paths. Um, there's a new book coming out from Brookings by my colleague Richard Reeves on the crisis in masculinity. Yeah, I know um, Richard. And, uh, he's yeah, been on the show. I talked to him about that book. And you know, that's something people weren't even talking about five years ago. So if you if your challenge is, well, show me the action, show me making things better. Well, but, but those are all observations of the problems. I'm not sure any of them really focus on how to fix them. I'm not sure whether Richard Reeves understands how to make boys proud of themselves again. Well, he has he has ideas, and I'll, well, we I'll all work. have ideas, and we always come. And, and, and one of the things I know in my show, it's very depressing. I mean, this and this isn't really a criticism; it's just an observation. Is everyone points out all the problems, and they come up with the solutions, and no one has any, really. And people talk about, oh, well, we can go back to the New Deal, we can increase taxes, or we can get build back better, and none of those are viable. None of them are going to happen. 
take primaries. Primaries have, I buy. I don't know that much about them. It might be worth having a show on. Yeah, that's a pretty big one. You might talk to a lot. Rather than electing, I mean, Murkowski, I'm not sure she's even someone we particularly, we, democracy wants to save. She's not exactly distinguished. What what America needs are young, energetic, smart, dynamic political figures who don't, who aren't controlled by one absurd camp or another. I mean, I was, uh, and we need to end this in a second, but I, before before we talked, I saw a, a piece about um, Gavin Newsom uh, and what he was up to, and he sort of sees himself maybe as the future of the Democratic Party. I mean, I know Newsom; he's been on the show a couple of times. I mean, he's very smooth and very smart. Whether he's the fix or the problem, maybe both. I don't know. You know, I think if you look at it from the top down, if you think about big national politics and leaders, uh, that's hard things look groomy, though I'm interested in Newsom. I'd like to know more about him. I'd love to get your reflections on him at some point. If you look at the country from the bottom up, at what's going on in civil society and in towns and cities around the country and movements like Braver Angels, which I'm part yeah. of. Um, and uh, we into- had um, a, a Braver Angel, uh, Monica Guzman, on the show. She's excellent. Yeah. Um, if you look at the country from the bottom up, if you look at it in a more Tocquevillian way, I think there's more grounds for hope. And, you know, I think the looking for the brave new leader who somehow unites us or is young and visionary and, and all of that, to me, it's overrated. To me, a lot, of, a lot more work will get done with a slow, steady work of institutional repair, uh, some of which is you've never heard of the Committee on the Modernization of Congress because it's not contentious because it's bipartisan, but they've made dozens of recommendations. I think about half of them have been adopted and it's part of a quiet backroom movement in Congress to begin to regain some institutional competence. If there's one thing, Andrew, a single thing, if you gave me a magic wand from Hogwarts and said, fix one thing about America, I know exactly what it would be. And it would be Congress because Congress is the only institution that combines all the factions of America and puts them together and tries to mediate their disputes. And when it's broken, everything else is broken. But people know that now. And these folks on Capitol Hill, you they'll go on your show. They're happy to tell you about it, but the paper isn't interested because it's not contentious. But you've got people who are making some of these changes on Capitol Hill. They brought back earmarks. You'll scoff. You'll say it's small. It's corrupt. I don't mean you, but people will. Actually, earmarks are a significant way that Congress can empower itself to do more business, to get itself moving again. So I guess what I want to say is if we, if we, if we wait for the, you know, the big leader, the big new type of politics, we'll always be disappointed. If, if we look for the many hundreds and thousands of institutional and personal reforms that, that we can make, then I think at least we feel better. No promises, but that's going to be my 4th of July wish. Well, John, you've proved to be an American. I proved to be a Brit. I always joke uh, <laughs> that uh, British people tend to be cheerful pessimists. Americans are miserable optimists, but you're not actually miserable. You're a cheerful pessimist, a cheerful <laughs> optimist, which is the best of both worlds. I, I hope you're right. I mean, and and I think we'll, we'll your, see. I, your, I don't want realism is 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 and and lack of willing to make ridiculous promises is extremely healthy. John, we'll have to make a. Uh, a tradition of this, let's meet again this time next year and talk about whether or not America is stronger or weaker. But a happy Independence Day, Jonathan Rausch, and thank you so much. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you for having me on the show, and I promise to attend your naturalization as a U.S. citizen in one year. <laughs>